Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Each of us has a story to tell, though not everyone becomes a writer whose work is picked up by a major publishing house. Today we hear from Connecticut native Jeanette Aliou, whose debut novel came out just this week, published by Random House. It's called Brass. Coming up, we'll hear from one of Aliou's mentors. Tim Parrish was her creative writing professor at Southern Connecticut State University. Now, how do individuals begin a professional writing career? What are the best ways for someone to break into the highly competitive publishing world? That's later. First, the adult novel Brass has been listed on several must-read book lists for 2018, including Oprah's. Brass has received high praise from the Library Journal and Booklist, which has also recommended it for advanced young adult readers. Jeanette Aliou lives in Athens, Georgia, but she's in Connecticut in advance of a book talk this Sunday in Waterbury. We'll tweet out more information on Twitter at Where We Live and on our website, WMPR.org. Jeanette, a pleasure to welcome you to Where We Live. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Brass uh, is set in the Brass City. Tell us about uh, your upbringing in Waterbury. Um, well, yeah, I grew up on the east end of Waterbury um, until I was about nine or ten and then moved over to the next town over in Wolcott. And, you know, I, I just remember walking to the bus stop in the morning and there was a empty factory across from the bus stop and empty factories kind of um, throughout the city streets. And there was just such a part of the backdrop that I never really looked at them. They were they were just, you know, part of the landscape that seemed really native and natural to me. Um, and so it was only when I left that I was like, oh, not everywhere has these these empty factories. And I, I started to wonder what they were about um, because, you know, they were just there growing up. So your book uh, follows the, the story uh, of two women, Elsie, who happens to be the mother of the other character, Lulietta, uh, and it switches back and forth between uh, the first person, Elsie's story, and then her daughter in the second person. Tell us a little bit about these characters. Um, okay. So Elsie was actually, um, I've lived with Elsie for a very long time. Um, for the first few drafts of the manuscript, actually, there was no Lulietta. Um, at least not uh, Lulietta as a character. Um, it was really kind of just the story of Elsie um, meeting Bashkim and um, carrying this child, um, and then the book kind of ended at her birth. Um, and Lulietta came later when I realized there had to be a reason why Elsie was telling the story at this time. Um, Elsie, you know, a lot of people have kind of commented um, just based on my bio that this is semi-autobiographical, and I I'm trying to assure people that it's not. Um, I know that the characters kind of share some uh, some of my background, um, but really, Elsie is an invention and is really nothing like my own mother. Um, but what I, she, I kind of based her, um, she's kind of a composite of a lot of women that I knew when I was going to community college and then Southern Connecticut State University with uh, Tim Parrish, who will be on the show later, um, because it was a lot of kind of older returning students, um, women who, you know, their kids were now old enough that they were able to go back to school um, or they had gotten divorced or just the situations in their lives had changed and they were really smart. Um, and they were really sharp. They took um, no BS because, uh, you know, they had already put enough on the line to get back to college. Um, and I really liked spending time with them. Um, and it, it kind of just made me wonder, you know, 
what the struggle was like in their lives when they were younger and how they ended up where they did. You said the book is not autobiographical. <laughs> you have in the dedication to my mother. This book is for you, not about you, I promise. Yes. Um, <laughs> lots of people have commented on that. Um, and, you know, of course, I did it to be cheeky a little bit. Um, I really do dedicate this book to my mother because she is an amazing woman. Um, she raised, you know, my brother and I as a single mother and then took on four kids who were not her own. Um, so I think she deserves dedications in many, many books. Um, this is just the one I've been able to get out. <laughs> um, but it's funny, you know, I have a short story collection that came out a few years ago. And um, there were just a couple of people who commented um, back then, like, you know, there's some people around town talking about your book because, you know, it's like scandalous. And I'm like, but it's not real. Um, there might be things that, you know, are recognizable. But what fiction writers do is they take experiences and they take um, just perceptions or things that they overhear on the street or, or just read in a newspaper. They conflate them all. They add imagination to it and then they create a story. Um, and so even the things that are kind of seeds um, that came from life have been, you know, grown into something completely different. So. Random House describes Brass as a fierce debut novel about mothers and daughters, haves and have-nots, the stark realities behind the American dream. Are there a lot of books out there today that are giving a realistic picture of what it's like for people uh, trying to achieve more? Um, I think that it's it's starting to be. Um, I know Hillbilly Elegy was kind of this, this book that made a huge splash last year because it kind of intersected um, – topically with things that people were now talking about, um, working class people, the elections in 2016, how those things um, kind of came to be. Um, but I, in fiction, I don't think that there is a whole lot. And in fact, when I first started writing fiction, um, I was concerned that I wouldn't have anything to write about because I didn't think anybody wanted um, to hear stories about people in you know, uh, a factory town, um, struggling people, working class people. And then I realized eventually, well, that's the reason to write about it. Um, but you know, a lot of times I think with fiction, if, if you're dealing with more you know, working class people, um, it, it tends to be either fetishized in the sense that like they're just these noble people struggling with the world you know, beating them down, or the opposite, where they're just kind of so mired in misery um, but it's just kind of brutal to read about. And and I wanted something where the realities um, of their lives and the hardships um, aren't glossed over, but at the same time, they get to still have a full range of experience and emotions because we, you know, people still live a life. Um, you, if you're concerned about having a job, you still are able to fall in love. You're still able to fall out of love. <laughs> you're still able to make mistakes and you're still able to, to have hope. Um, so I just wanted to, to kind of put that together um, in a fictional narrative. Jeanette Aliou is in studio with us today on Where We Live. Uh, Jeanette, you mentioned, uh, we're talking about your debut novel, Brass. You mentioned Elsie, who is uh, one of the main characters. Uh, tell us a little bit more about her story arc and who this Bashkim is. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, Elsie is uh, kind of a sassy, sharp, but not terribly driven uh, young woman of 18 years old who has finished high school and um, kind of biding her time. So she, sh she says that she's going to, you know, get a, uh, a certificate in, uh, as a dental technician. Um, but I think that most people from the get-go know that maybe she doesn't quite have the, uh, the motivation to see that through. Um, but it doesn't mean that she's dumb. Um, she's just a little misguided and um, really has not had anybody... Um, kind of instill in her the value of education. Um, really, the value is, you know, go to work, be unhappy, just but make your money um, and make sure you don't get too far into debt. Um, 
And so she's she's biding her time working at the Betsy Ross Diner, where she meets Bosch Keem, who is a recent Albanian immigrant. And she's not somebody who's had a whole lot of opportunity um, kind of presented to her. And Bosch Keem offers what it first seems like opportunity. Um, a, he's very flattering to her. He calls her beautiful. And um, I think it's pretty explicit in the book. She's not you know, beautiful in any traditional sense, um, but she's very ready to hear that. Um, and also he's gotten some investments um, lined up in his native Albania and um, seems to know what he's talking about. And she's very, um, you know, dazzled by that. Um, and he, he wants to take her along for the ride. And she's she's very game because, you know, the plan that she has kind of loosely structured for herself is not taking her very far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's better to hitch her, you know, her horse to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they meet and at a diner they both work at, the Betsy Ross Diner. Is this based on a place that yes, you went to? It, as a yeah, child? actually, um, you know, in the book, in the book, the Betsy Ross Diner still exists. Um, in life, it doesn't. But the Betsy Ross Diner was a place I spent a lot of time at um, in, in my teenage years. And I think most people um, from the Waterbury area will remember it if they grew up in the 90s, especially. <laughs> um, yeah, it was definitely a real place. It had, you know, the Street Fighter um, video game in the lobby. It was a very, you know, classic, traditional Greek diner, but run by Albanians. Um, and yeah, it was, <laughs> it's, it's very vivid in my memory. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to to call this book Brass? I mean, those of us in Connecticut know that Waterbury (laughs) is the Brass City, but a little bit more about uh, the symbolism, especially of the story that you're telling in this book. Um, Yeah. So actually, the original title of the book was a lot longer. It was called What is More Lasting Than Brass? And that is actually um, inscribed in Latin above City Hall in Waterbury. Um, and before we sent it on submission, my agent actually suggested that we shortened it. And I, she said, how about just brass? And I really liked it. It was very punchy. Um, brass is, you know, obviously it's, it suggests strength. Um, it's an alloy. It's a very strong alloy. Um, but it's also ironic, the title, because um, the brass actually isn't there anymore. Um, in Waterbury, when you're driving around, um, you'll see, you know, Everything is named after Brass. There's Brass City this, there's Brass Mill that, the mall is Brass City Mall, you know, there's a, you know, Brass Pony Pub. Um, but it's it's almost um, it's almost a little bit cruel to kind of see that history that is now out of reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a bit of irony in the title as well. Um, but I also think that these women in the book, um, they do have this strength and this resilience. So even when, you know, um, the elements and and the world are kind of trying to beat them down. Um, they can't help but just kind of prevail. Um, you know, even when it doesn't seem like they're thriving, they're still there. And it was this brass industry that brought the the many immigrants that live in Waterbury. Exactly. So yeah, the um, the, the immigration stories, which um, you know. Elsie's family's been here for a few generations, and when they would have come, they would have found work in the brass mills. Um, But by the time Elsie um, comes of age just a couple of generations later, that's ancient history. Um, And yet there are still people kind of emigrating to Waterbury, um, and unfortunately, the the work isn't there waiting for them anymore. And so now I think people think, well, these people just came over to freeload, which is, you know, um, not a very generous um, (laughs) interpretation of what people are doing. I think everybody came for the same reason, which is opportunity. It's just the opportunity is not now. It it doesn't exist now the way that it did then. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that here in the Northeast, we're familiar with the factory towns, but depending on where you are in this country, uh, this uh, narrative and the setting is something that's unknown. When you were 
seeking your uh, MFA in the southern part of the country. What were the students' reactions to this story that you were telling? It was so funny because I was, I think, 26 when I started my MFA, and I thought I was very worldly, and I thought that, you know, I had this down. Um, So I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, where I got my MFA, and um, the first story that I turned into workshop was just a very bland, you know, first story workshop, coming-of-age tale um, about some kids who discover some naked photos of their neighbors in the woods. And um, to my great surprise, people didn't really focus on that element of the story when they were discussing it. They kept mentioning things like, oh, the characters' names, they must be ethnic because I've never heard that name before. Um, This must take place in the Northeast because there are all these references to to factories and the types of work that people do. And I was flabbergasted because I honestly had no idea that most people didn't grow up that way. Um, I thought that... um, I thought that blue collar work was um, de facto for almost everybody. And I thought that, you know, everybody had at least a grandparent um, who came from a different country. Um, And, you know, the longer I spent in the South, I realized that, you know, people would say, well, what kind of name is that? And I would tell them. And I would say, well, you know, what's your background? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know, Scots-Irish. And the fact that they didn't even know was, you know, you know, shocking to me. Um, So that's when I kind of took a step back and and put the lens back on the place that I had left, right? Never really had any intention of writing about it and thought, well, maybe there is something um, to to develop here. People seemed interested. Uh, in the book, uh, there are characters that are Albanian, also Lithuanian. These are two background family backgrounds of yours. Uh, how did you weave that into the story and how did that in sh- shape your life? Um, well, it's funny, you know, one of the things um, that you know, people found interesting, I would say, what my background was. And they were like, what's Lithuanian? What's Albanian? They didn't even know. So I think um, it's kind of funny in Brass um, that Elsie's Lithuanian family and um, Bashkim's Albanian family both look at each other as if they're very strange. Um, it's a very kind of different culture. But to most people outside of Waterbury who aren't familiar with those those ethnicities, um, it's really all the same. <laughs> it's just something uh, kind of exotic that's probably in Eastern Europe somewhere. Um, and so I wanted to kind of um, play with that a little bit, too, where it's like these people see themselves as very different. Um, and yet for people outside of that, they're not seeing it as very different at all. Um, but, you know, as far as the kind of conflicts that it brings up um, between um, Elsie and Bashkim, Elsie comes from a Catholic family. Bashkim comes from a Muslim family. Um, and neither one of them are very devout or practicing, but they both kind of, um, their families at least kind of wield it as, you know, well, this is not really going to work out probably because he's this and she is that. Um, and, you know, in my own families, it was, you know, my parents didn't work out. <laughs> um, there were some kind of insurmountable differences between them. But being the child of these two different um, cultures, I was able to kind of have a neutral position on it and say, well, you know, um, doesn't seem so different to me. <laughs> uh, you mentioned your short uh, collection of, of stories uh, that's been published also uh, a few years ago, Domesticated Wild Things. Uh, Again, stories based in Waterbury. Some people thought it was scandalous yeah. from back home. <laughs> How do you think they're going to perceive this book? Oh, you know, I've been very nervous about this. And I guess we'll find out on Sunday because I'm doing a reading in Waterbury. And I think a lot of people I grew up with will be there. Uh, my family will be there. And, um, you know, I've been I've been a little bit worried that people will think um, I have a vendetta against Waterbury and I, I think the truth is, as if you read the book, you know, it really definitely starts off with um, Elsie and Lilietta both really wanting to get out of town and really kind of just resenting where they grew up and how they grew up. 
And um, ultimately, with Lilietta, who does kind of flee and go on this road trip, um, she, she kind of discovers that as she gets further and further away from Waterbury, things aren't really feeling as different as she thought they would. And I think um, the kind of, um, you know, what she'll come to um, as a conclusion is that maybe it's not where you are that's really going to dictate, um, you know, how you feel and what your, your life turns out to be. Um, and so I hope that, you know, people don't think I'm just bashing Waterbury. I mean, Waterbury ha- does have issues. It's a it's a struggling city and there aren't a whole lot of economic opportunities. Um, there's not a whole lot of um, at least when I was growing up, I think things, things have changed a bit somewhat. Um, there weren't a whole lot of kind of cultural opportunities. Um, now there's a theater that's reopened up and there's a magnet, an arts magnet school that's downtown in Waterbury. And so things are starting to happen a little bit. But, you know, when I was growing up, it was roller skating. And that was pretty much it. Um, even the mall. Uh, that you know now there's the Brass City Mall, which is a bigger mall, but our mall at the time was just this piddly little, um, you know, one level thing that you just kind of went back and forth, um, you know, strolling, and that was really and the Betsy Ross Diner. Yeah. That was that was what you did um, growing up. <laughs> Author Jeanette Aliou's in studio with us here on Where We Live as we talk about her debut novel, Brass, set in her hometown of Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, this week is the week the book is available in bookstores. I understand that's considered the 23rd was Brass's birthday? Yes. Yeah, so this is something I didn't know. Books always launch on Tuesdays. Um, that's, you know, new to me, too. Um, but, yeah, it came out this past week. It was... Um, almost two years between when it was accepted and when it was actually um, released. And again, that's it's fairly common in publishing. I didn't know that until I was, you know, putting my own book out. Um, but yeah, it's very exciting. Um, you know, for about 18 months, I was like, this book is never going to come out. It's, you know, it's like, it's such a long wait. And then the last couple of months before release, I was like, I am not ready for this. <laughs> you know? It seemed to be coming on very fast. Um, but it's, it's been terribly exciting. Um, on Tuesday, I read in Atlanta and then drove the next day to Nashville and then drove back to Atlanta yesterday and flew up here. So it's been kind of a whirlwind. I'm not sure what day of the week it is right now. But I also know that this um, this 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 part of things ends quickly um, and I should relish it while it's happening. So, you know, it's not very often I get to feel like a glamorous traveler, even though I was in coach in the middle seat. You know, <laughs> um, So I'm just I'm just trying to enjoy it. Does it feel life changing? It does. Um, It does. But, you know, it's funny. Life has a way of, you know, helping you keep perspective as well, because throughout all of this, I'm still working my job. You know, I'm I'm on leave right now, Um, but I go back to work when I when I go back to Georgia and I've still got, you know, a house that needs cleaning and I still have dogs that need taken care of. And it's funny, you know, you think like, okay, now I'm a now I'm an author. I'm a published author. But you're still also these other things in life that, you know, remind you to, you know, don't don't get too big for your britches. <laughs> Again, Jeanette Aliou in studio with me as we talk about her debut novel, Brass. Uh, it takes place in the Brass City, uh, Waterbury. After the break, we're going to talk more about her book and how she launched her writing career while balancing that day job she just mentioned. We're going to take your questions, too. Are you an aspiring author? How do you draw on your personal experiences in your writings? Have you read Brass? Uh, there's an excerpt of the book on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Okay. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The novel Brass tells the story of Elsie and her daughter Lulietta, set in Waterbury, Connecticut. Author Jeanette Aliou grew up in Connecticut's Brass City. Brass is her first novel, and she's in studio with us today. Uh, Jeanette, your book's been described as honest, fierce, blazing with humor. I was wondering if you could read a little bit of your book Brass uh, for our listeners. Yeah, of course. Um, this is from the very beginning, chapter one. When the last of the brass mills locked up their doors and hauled ass out of town once and for all, it seemed all they left behind were blocks of abandoned factories that poked out from behind high stone gates like caskets floated to the surface after the great flood of 55. But that wasn't true. They also left my father's hands with nothing to callous them. Those poor idle bastards that once upon a time abandoned a Korean Stratocaster knockoff in favor of a Bridgeport milling machine— And just like most love triangles, it turned out he chose wrong. It left my mother slumping over the assembly line at the Peter Paul Mounds and Almond Joy factory down the street in Naugatuck, where she sometimes felt like a nut, but more often she felt like a highball. It left my sister, Greta, younger than me by two years, but with test scores that painted me a remedial toddler by comparison, with a tick that made me pull with a tick that made her pull out her hair until the white bald patches of her scalp shone through like flags of surrender. And when the last of the brass mills locked up their doors and hauled ass out of town once and for all, they left me with a change jar that hadn't even gotten me close to the wicked coop that was going to drive me out of Waterbury so fast I wouldn't even bother to burn the skid marks that would mark my goodbye. Again, that's from your book, Brass, uh, just released uh, this week, uh, published by Random House. Uh, when I was reading your book, something that really struck me, you know, I come from Pennsylvania, also uh, near, uh, you know, Rust Belt City. And when you grow up, I think a lot of people uh, may feel this, that they can't wait to leave their hometown. <laughs> There's always something better out there. Uh, but you mentioned uh, earlier in the show that uh, once you left, you started to notice things about Waterbury uh, that... Um, were different, but something that you connected with and you wanted to share that with others. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a unique place. Um, you know, I think people kind of tend to think of Rust Belt cities as being all the same, but I think that there is their own flavor. Um, I think specific to, to Waterbury um, is these kind of mix of different ethnicities. Um, and, you know, different Rust Belt cities have those as well. But in Waterbury specifically, you know, you have Lithuanian, you have, of course, Italian um, and Irish were kind of the first waves that came through. The Lithuanian and then the Albania is more recent, um, large Puerto Rican population as well. Um, and so... When I moved down south, and again, it was, I think I'm Scots-Irish, um, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's funny. And I couldn't get a good port- Portuguese roll anywhere, and I couldn't, you know, find a decent slice of pizza. So there were parts of me that were definitely missing, <laughs> you know, things that I, that I took for granted when I was growing up. Did you know you always wanted to write? Um, uh, maybe the desire was there, but um, I wouldn't have dared to even articulate it. Um, I read like crazy growing up. I was definitely a a book nerd. Um, I grew up at the Silas Brunson Library in Waterbury, spent so much time there. Um, It was, I mean, my mother would just drop us off on Saturday and we'd spend hours there and my brother would kind of head towards the the records um, and I would go towards the books. And, um, you know, I never really associated reading with writing. Um, I just thought, you know, writers were these magical creatures 
kind of like fashion models, like you had to be born that way. If you didn't have the genetics for it, then, you know, too bad. Then you could look at models, but you couldn't be one. And I thought the same thing about uh, writers. I thought, you know, I'm a reader, but uh, whoever it is that produces these words that become books, um, I have no idea how to do that. You have these stories and characters uh, in your mind, but you also have a day job. So you're a librarian by day. I am. Yes. So, um, you know, I've been uh, a librarian. I I guess I finished library school. uh, What year is it? 2018. About (laughs) four years ago, I think. Um, And before that, I had been working as a private investigator which, um, you know, sounds very exotic and everybody loves to hear that. But, um, you know, mostly what I was doing was um, investigating hedge fund managers and financial managers. Um, and it was, mo- you know, 90 something percent database research. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really like doing research. I really like, you know, finding out the information that is hidden under, you know, thousands and thousands of words of shrouded, um, coded information um, and digging out the little nugget of what you need. Um, it's like detective work, and um, it's just very gratifying. It's like problem solving. Um, but I wasn't really interested in the field of, you know, hedge fund managers and financial managers. Um, so I thought, you know, librarianship is very similar to this. Um, and so I looked into library school, and, um, you know, at this point I had enough student loan debt to, you know, I could be a medical doctor, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, and so I was waiting um, for an opportunity that I can go um, through a fellowship, and I finally got one through Alabama. Um, and so I finished my library degree, and now I'm working as an academic librarian um, in Athens, Georgia, a little liberal arts school called Piedmont College. How did your background in research help you as you wrote Brass? Again, um, focusing on one of the characters, uh, Bosch Keem, Elsie's deadbeat boyfriend, an Albanian immigrant. In the story, uh, you hear uh, the perspective of him and others about the Albanian Civil War. So how did you use your research in terms of writing this book? That's a good question, and I thank you for asking it because, again, this is where um, you know people see the my biography and they think that it's a semi-autobiographical novel. My father um, was ethnic Albanian, but he actually grew up in um, what was Yugoslavia, um, is now Macedonia. Um, and so Bashkim's background is very different from my father's. Bashkim uh, grew up in Albania, um, and in the 90s, um, after communism fell, um, they were starting to establish, um, you know, a capitalist democratic uh, society. But because they had been so closed off from the rest of the world for for generations, they really kind of have no idea how to go about doing that. And so, um, you know, I wanted Bashkim to have to to be pursuing this dream of wealth and glory um, and coming to America to to kind of do that. Um, and so I had to kind of do the research and say, well, you know, what what would he have been pursuing at this particular time in the mid-90s? And it just worked out really beautifully that this Albanian, um, basically a Ponzi scheme was being built in the country. Um, And so the kind of research I did to find out about that was um, a lot of actually just reading news archives and watching old news broadcasts. And it was kind of a fine line because, you know, Elsie is the narrator of those sections about Bashkim. And there's a lot that he withholds from her. And so I had to make it um, authentic to her where she kind of starts to understand what's happening, but not too much because he's keeping her in the dark. And there's not a whole lot of information about what's happening in Albania coming through um, in the U.S. And so, you know, by watching these kind of news um, archives, these media um, archives, 
you know, Dan Rather might have talked about it for 20 seconds um, once or twice. Um, and so that's kind of as much information as Elsie would get, too, um, other than just the little bit that's being leaked from um, Bosch Keem's uh, aunt, who also works at the Betsy Ross Diner. Um, and so it was kind of a fine line to walk between, you know, kind of understanding what was happening in Albania, but also being a little bit in the dark about it um, the way that Elsie would have been. Was it difficult to write the story? Because I briefly mentioned earlier that Elsie, uh, Julieta's mother, it, it, you write it in the first person, mm. but Julieta's uh, story is written in the second person. So each chapter you're flipping back and forth uh, uh, into their story, uh, Elsie when she's a young adult, and then 17 years later, Julieta, she's trying to figure out where she's, uh, where her life is going. So uh, I guess explain a little bit more about uh, why you decided to tell it that way and, and how that can be challenging. Oh, uh, sure. Well, with Elsie, it was always a first-person voice because I really wanted um, the kind of strength of that voice, and I wanted to to have a character um, who's not always represented in fiction very well. Um, I think um, by having this first-person character who comes from this you know working-class background, not educated but smart, um, what kind of language would she use to tell her own story as opposed to what kind of language would an author use to tell this story? Because I think there is a difference, but I think it's worth listening um, to everybody's story. So I really wanted to channel um, the kind of first-person grit um, and a little bit coarse language that, that Elsie would use. With Loyetta, I tried many different ways of writing that story. Um, you know, I rewrote that narrative several times. I tried it in first person. I tried it in third person. And then um, when nothing was really quite clicking, I um, decided, well, let me just, for fun, as an exercise, I'll write it in second person. And, you know, to, to kind of my great dismay, it was working. Um, and I say great dismay because, you know, second person is not the most natural point of view. People don't encounter it very much um, as readers, and I thought that there might be a lot of resistance to it. Um, but to me, Lulieta is somebody who doesn't really feel like she gets to tell her own story. She feels like fate is kind of determining the, the course of her own life. Um, and she's trying to resist that, but she kind of feels like she's just being moved um, by life and by fate. And so by using the second person where you're saying, you know, you walk out into the street and you do this, it's almost as if this this unknown actor is kind of telling her what to do. Um, I found while I was reading the story that I was m more sympathetic to Elsie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe I've connected to her better by the way that you wrote it. Um, I think with Lilietta, it's difficult because she is a teenager and she doesn't have very much perspective. And it is true that she's got struggles, but she also has privileges that I think she doesn't recognize the way that most of us as teenagers don't. Um, you know, she does have a mother who cares for her. She does have a mother who's at least encouraging her to go to college. Um, she lives. This is another thing, you know, connect, I, part of what the reason I wanted to set this story in Waterbury um, as opposed to any other industrial city is that. Waterbury's in Connecticut, and it's a you know it is a struggling city, but it's in a state that people um, think is synonymous with wealth. Um, so when you when I say I'm from Connecticut, people say oh, and they kind of shake their head because they think they know where I'm coming from. Um, but I wanted these characters to live in a place where you know just down the highway there's there's enormous wealth and opportunity, um, and they just don't know quite how to get it. Um, but I think Lilietta and Elsie, when she's younger, also doesn't recognize the, the privilege of that. You know, it's they're not growing up in Appalachia with no running water. Um, there are some opportunities that that maybe they don't recognize. And they're kind of, again, unfairly scapegoating the city as the, the kind of source for all of their woes. Um, I think that because, you know, with Elsie, she starts off pretty immature, but she has to kind of grow pretty quickly when she 
you know, realizes that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does continue to make mistakes, but she really, really tries. And so I think it's easier to empathize with her. Um, whereas Lilietta, you just kind of want to shake her um, and, and get her to stop being 17 years old. But, you know, she's still 17. <laughs> this is where we live. Uh, Jeanette Aliu is in studio with me again. Uh, her, she's the author of a debut novel just out this week uh, called Brass. You also wrote a collection of short stories titled Domesticated Wild Things. And you're writing uh, at times while, you know, certain stories might be dark. You're still a funny writer. There's still humor uh, in these characters. Uh, I wanted to to bring up the fact that uh, author Sherman Alexie even commented on your writing style. That must have made you feel, uh, what did did you think when Uh, Sherman Alexie's talking about your writing style (laughs) he wants to borrow from you? Uh, I was like, I think I could quit now. I'll probably, (laughs) you know, leave while I'm ahead of the game. (laughs) But I didn't, thankfully. Um, Yeah, I mean, that was enormous for me. The, The story collection actually won a book prize, and that's how that was published. Um, So it was the Prairie Schooner Book Prize. And the way that, you know, I had been writing stories um, for a long time. Um, I would, you know, write them when I was uh, in my MFA program and I continued. And it was actually, you know, I had started working on the novel, but sometimes I would come to an impasse and I would say, okay, I'm going to take a break and go back to writing short stories because they're very fun to write. It's almost like going on a date. You know, you don't know how it's going to turn out, but it's always exciting and it doesn't last that long. So if it's a disaster, you can just kind of walk away pretty cleanly. Um, but, you know, the, um, the novel, the process of writing the novel was taking so long that I, I kind of felt like I was stalled professionally as a writer. And so I thought, you know, I actually have enough stories to put together um, into a manuscript. So let me just see what happens. And I, I sent it out to a couple of contests and it won one of them, the Prairie Schooner Book Prize. And um, Sherman Alexie was actually the judge of that. Um, so, you know... To to have his name on my first book um, was, you know, again, it, it's surpassed anything I could have dreamed of. Um, and I was kind of like, oh, no, how can I possibly top this um, if the novel ever gets published? <laughs> um, he actually wrote, and I wanted to read this, uh, about that, again, that uh, collection of stories called Domesticated Wild Things. Uh, he wrote, uh, here is a lot of the body in these stories. Uh, there's a lot of body in these stories, stink and rot and perfume and dead skin, often out of control and goofy. Domesticated Wild Things is also extremely funny and mordant. The wild energy of Aliyu's diction mocks and illuminates the English language. Yeah, I'll take it. Sure. <laughs> um, so writing with humor to me, um, you know, there was a point where I was like, OK, I have to stop being funny because writing is serious business. And um, this is when I was you know, still studying creative writing um, in my MFA program. And so I would write something that I thought like, oh, this is going to break some hearts. And I would turn it in and people would say, this is so funny. I couldn't just get rid of the humor. And then eventually I realized that I didn't want to. Um, to me, Humor is as much a part of the human experience um, as sadness and grief and everything else, um, beauty, um, that to me, it just seems um, I'm, I'm not telling a complete story if I omit humor. And, you know, I grew up in a funny family. We're very loud. We're very boisterous. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to kind of you know use some of that energy that I got from them. Um, in my fiction. And, uh, you know, I want to honor the kind of um, resilience that humor can bring to people who might, you know, otherwise just be kind of shuffling their feet around and being sad. (laughs) An example in the book Brass, uh, we also uh, meet uh, Elsie's mother, and she wants to be called Mamie. (laughs) Could you read this excerpt again? Uh, She's dealing with being an alcoholic, but the way that you describe it, this is Lulietta, I believe. Yes. But there were also the non-fine times when, 
Upon returning to Mamie's house after an afternoon at Hamilton Park, you found her slumped on the floor in the kitchen, and you would panic and call your mother at work, and your mother would calmly instruct you to check Mamie's breathing, roll her onto her side, and sit quietly in the living room until she was able to get authorization from her supervisor to leave for the day. See this, your mother would say when she finally arrived, this is why you don't drink. The next day, when you were dropped off with Mamie again, Mamie would point to the door your mother just exited in an angry huff and say, see this, this is why I drink. The example of, you know, people dealing with uh, uh, hard situations, but trying to find a little humor and wit uh, in the description of what's going on in their lives. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a very fair way to get through your day. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that there's anything, you know, <laughs> um, negative about, you know, using humor to, to kind of laugh your way through um, adversity. Uh, now that you, again, uh, your book has been published by Random House, uh, you've been, um, your essays have shown up uh, on different online, uh, on websites. On Lenny, um, an example of an essay that you wrote about your brother, and this is uh, tackling a very hard issue. It Can is. You- and, you know, it's funny, um, <laughs> part of, you know, when you're, before your book comes out, you know, your publicist will sit you down and say, try to write some essays, we'll try to place them just to kind of, you know, it's like commercials for your book. Um, and I thought, okay, I'll write some one-off essays. And, and I, I, it turned out that I actually really enjoyed writing them. Um, the Lenny essay in particular was very difficult for me to write. I had a, a very hard time um, kind of trying to capture any um, part of Michael's story, never mind the entire essence of it. Um, it was something that literally kept me up at night. I would, I would, you know, have insomnia and I would go into the room and try to work on this essay. And it's, you know, it's a short essay. Um, and it's not a story that can be told, I think, um, usually that succinctly. Um, so I just really wanted to focus on this one thing, which was, you know, the sofa in our house, which is where we would all go if we had a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my brother Michael, who was a, a soldier, um, he had night terrors growing up. And so I kind of focused on that. And it turns out, you know, after he returned from war, and I didn't know this um, until after it was too late, but he had been having, um, you know, nightmares related to PTSD. Um, and ultimately took his own life, which is obviously, you know, something that our family still has a very hard time, you know, talking about and dealing with. Um, but I, I actually have found that it's something I do want to talk about. Sometimes I feel like I don't talk about it because I think that other people don't want to hear about that kind of grief and sadness. Um, but it's not something that I am trying to turn away from. I actually find it, um, you know, therapeutic and healing um, to talk about it. And and when I get together with my sisters and my brother and my, my parents, um, we often end up telling really funny stories about Michael and laughing. Um, and so, again, it's just kind of one way to keep his, his, um, his memory alive and to keep him with us. You say that it's therapeutic. Um, people who may read that essay and we'll tweet it out at our web um, on Twitter at where we live, um, they may connect with that story because it's similar to something or someone they know. Yeah, in fact, I already um, you know had somebody say that this that that essay meant a whole lot to them. I think the circumstances of their loss were very different, but I think just talking about loss and and feeling like you don't have to apologize. Um, for saying, no, I want to keep this person, um, you know, alive um, through through essay or through story, um, I think is just a way to, to reclaim a little bit of what's been lost and, and keep keep going.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Are you looking for a book to read in 2018? The novel Brass has been featured on several must-read book recommendations. Author Jeanette Aliou is in studio with us to tell us more about her debut novel. Again, she grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut. She uses her hometown as the setting in this book. And coming up next, we're going to hear from one of her mentors when she studied at Southern Connecticut State University. We're going to ask them about tips for aspiring authors. Have you read Brass? You're in luck, an excerpt of the book on our website wmpr.org slash where we live you can join the conversation too 860-275-7266 find us on facebook and twitter at where we live This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Later today, the Waterbury State's attorney is expected to release a report into the death of 15-year-old Jason Negron. He was shot by a Bridgeport police officer last May. On the next Where We Live, we're going to get the latest on that story. Now, today we're talking about Brass, a new novel by Connecticut native Jeanette Aliou. She graduated from Southern Connecticut State University before going on to earn her master's degrees from UNC Wilmington and University of Alabama. At Southern, Jeanette met one of her creative writing mentors, and he joins us now, Tim Parrish, professor of creative writing at Southern, also founder of the Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing Residence Program at SCSU, and he's also the author of three books. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, y'all. How are you doing, Jeanette? Great to hear your voice. Hi, Tim. Great to hear you. So, Tim, uh, have you read Brass? Uh, Of course I have, although it it came in two days ago, so I had to really get neck deep in Waterbury. Well, well, you know you wanted to lose sleep over it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, another blue-collar boy, so I felt right at home. Uh, Tim, what what do you remember about Jeanette as a student? Well, Jeanette was, you know, I knew Jeanette could be a writer who went wherever she wanted from the first time I read a sentence, because it's usually in the sentences. And I remember as soon as she came in, she had the the kernel of all the things that are coming to fruition now. <clears throat> you know, she she you, you've, you've all covered everything so well, I'm kind of going to be redundant, but she already had the wit. She already had at 19 or 20 that kind of deep insight into place and character. And more than that, she already had this kind of nascent vision. And I, you know, I think it was lucky for both of us that she came in because I grew up blue collar in Baton Rouge. My dad worked in a petrochemical uh, factory, and you know, and I later did too. And I think, uh, just like uh, my first teachers in writing did for me, I I kind of gave her license, or I let her know it's okay to write about home. And I think she took it from there, and you know. I didn't have to do much else. When you are teaching your students, Tim, uh, when people are talented, is it you have to have a certain thing to become a writer like Jeanette, or are there things that people can learn uh, where they can also draw from their own personal experiences uh, to write a book like Brass? Yeah, it's a mix. I mean, it's it's good to have uh, a lot of talent and to be well-read like Jeanette was. But, you know, we take people wherever they are. And uh, not everybody I work with is going to be a publishing writer, and I don't think that's essential even at the MFA level because I think the important thing is just to get people to try to find the stories that are important for them to tell and to you know have their their vision come to reality. So, but you know we've had other students like Jeanette, and when I get students like Jeanette with that level of talent, uh, you know it's a big plus. <laughs> 
Uh, what do you? What kind of advice do you give students who want to break in uh, to uh, the literary world in the sense of having a, a publishing house like Random House uh, picking up their work? Um, it seems like it's highly competitive. Well, it's incredibly competitive, and I think Jeanette can uh, can speak and has spoken to all that better than I can already. She's she's done what uh, I think every writing mentor wants to have happen. She's she, you know she's rocketed past where I've ever been, and I, I, I you know very excited about that. But I, you know, I a lot of times when I when I talk to audiences, they want to know about publishing, but I always take it back to the writing itself, and it's it's. It's useless, really, to think about publishing before you think about writing. And Jeanette can attest to this. Um, even with her level of talent, it was a long time before she broke through to win the contest, first of all, with her amazing short story collection, and then with Brass. So I'm not deflecting. It's a tough business. <laughs> but again, it should be about being a writer first. Jeanette? I absolutely 1,000% agree with that. Um, you know, I'll get at Q&As or, you know, I will teach, you know, um, workshops um, and I'll have a 19 or 20 year old student raise their hand and ask about publishing. I'm like, don't ask the publishing question yet. Um, never write. I mean, you shouldn't be writing with the aim of impressing an editor um, because an editor is going to be going to find it really transparent if you're just trying to to kind of play to market taste or or trends in publishing. Just work on the writing. And in fact, that was actually something um, that was really beneficial in my creative writing program as well. Some uh, MFA programs are very um, focused on the professional and publishing, and mine was really just about the the word itself, the the story itself, and so. Um, that benefits you in the long run. And it, it takes the pressure off of you where if you're not publishing that you don't feel like you're failing. Um, yeah. I had the pleasure of interviewing Angie Thomas uh, late last year. Uh, she had written the book uh, The Hate You Give, yes. which has gotten uh, so much praise. And something she told an audience of students is write, write every day. Mm-hmm. Jeanette, is that what you yes, do? Yes, you have to write every day. Um, it is to- it's a very much a practice. Um, I... You know, I work full time, like many of us. You know, if you're a writer, also don't quit your day job, <laughs> even if you sell a book. Um, it's probably not going to hold you over um, for the next 10 years. Um, I have found, after trying and failing many times to kind of find what works for me as a writer, that I just need the routine. So, you know, now I wake up in the morning, I write before work, I have about an hour, an hour and a half to get some words down on paper. And because I know that I have such a limited time, um, I find that I'm actually able to focus very well. Um, whereas, you know, I was freelancing for a while and I would have hours and hours to write and I would just find myself folding laundry instead or, you know, doing the dishes. Um, but the important thing is that you just do it and you have to read too. You have to read as much as you write, Absolutely. actually more. Oh, what did it feel like when you were sending, you know, scripts, manuscripts out and they were getting rejected? How do you get past that? Oh, well, you know, thankfully, Tim, <laughs> Tim, I don't you probably don't remember this, but there was um, one story that you liked that I had turned in for workshop and you suggested sending it out to literary magazines. And I was like, oh, do you think they'll like it? Or do you think it'll get taken? You're like, no, of course it's not going to get taken. But um, <laughs> it was really just an exercise and kind of like justifying uh, your feeling that you're a writer um, and sending your work out there and also just getting used, getting that callus because you need it. Um, I, I have told people, you know, this is a field where if you get 99 rejections and one acceptance, then you're doing fantastic. Um, and there's really not many other fields where you can just get 
told no over and over and over again, um, and you still feel like you know you deserve to be in that field. <laughs> Uh, we're getting a lot of good tips again from uh, author Jeanette Aliou, a Connecticut native. Her debut novel out this week uh, called Brass uh, on the phone with us is uh, her old professor from creative writing at Southern Connecticut State University, uh, Tim Parrish. We did mention that MFA program, Tim. What's the best way for our listeners to find out about that program uh, that you run? Well, they can always find me uh, my, at my Southern email, which is Parrish with two R's. T is in Tim, numeral one at southernct.edu, or they can uh, just Google Southern Connecticut State MFA program. But I want to I want to say we're I'm really proud of our MFA program, and we're having great success. One of our uh, recent grads is going to have uh, is going to be the lead author for Hache or Hatchet as I call it <laughs> next spring, and also. Uh, but I'm also especially proud of our undergrad program. In fact, this year. Three people from Jeanette's class have published books. And uh, so I want to put the emphasis as much on undergrad, uh, our undergrad creative writing program, which uh, preceded the MFA, because, you know, I just don't think a lot of, there's so many stories to be told in Connecticut and so many working and middle-class people who haven't discovered the way to tell those stories. And we'd love to have them, love to work with them. Thank you, uh, Tim Parrish. We're getting a tweet from a listener uh, who writes, wow, where can I buy a copy of this book like today? Anywhere <laughs> books are sold. Um, <laughs> if you have a Barnes & Noble near you, um, it is a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer selection, um, which means that it should be on a special display and it's 20% off um, because they're promoting it for the um, winter and spring season. So that's very exciting. And of course, I always suggest supporting your indie bookstore if you have an indie next to you. We should mention the Barnes & Noble event in Waterbury this Sunday, January 28th at 1. Uh, information also on our website where you'll be in conversation with Tim Parrish. I cannot wait to see him. Talk <laughs> to him great. in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you, uh, Jeanette, we only have under a minute. What are you working on next? Uh, I am working on another novel. Um, before Brass went out on submissions, I had, I had just started it, and it was really nice to have something to be excited about in case Brass didn't go the way that I wanted it to. Does Waterbury play a part? It does. It plays uh, It plays a part in about half of the book, and the other half is actually set in Kosovo, in uh, in the Balkans. Well, we really appreciate you uh, taking time uh, to speak at uh, Connecticut's public radio station here, WNPR. Again, Jeanette Aliou. Uh, her new book is Brass. I guarantee if you pick it up, you're going to devour it in just a, a few days. And an excerpt on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Thank you so much. Such thank a pleasure you, to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been super exciting. Also, thanks to Tim Parrish. He'll be at that Waterbury uh, Barnes & Noble event. Uh, again, thank Tim, thank you for calling in today. Thank you so much. Love the show. Thank you. Today's show produced by producer Carmen Baskoff. Technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our executive producer for WMPR is Katie Talarski. Learn more about the show at WMPR.org. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.